Progressive brings you Flowetry with Flow. A tool called Name Your Price. Get a grip on your spending like an industrial vice. It's nice. Beats rolling the dice. I prefer brown rice. Don't carry dumbbells when you walk on thin ice. Splash. Get insurance based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to episode three of the Stolen Signs podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Kendall Gilmet, joined by Harry Pavlidis. Hello, Kendall. Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you again as well, Harry. Today, we are going to be talking about the hot hand with... Yes, streakiness. Streakiness <laughs> with Rob Arthur, uh, who authored an article with Greg Matthews and um, at 538. And we'll also be speaking with Jim Albert, uh, who's a professor at Bowling Green State and um, has some critiques of, yes. of the article and uh, the methodology. So we will dive into that with them. That should be a good discussion because, uh, you know, for interest of disclaimers, we, I, we, we, I've been aware of this research for quite a long time. And actually, they use data from pitch info so even on the published article my name is mentioned in the credits which is which is adorable uh and sweet so thank you um so with that out of the way i thought this was a really cool article that had a lot of limitations and i think what we we found out after it was published that jim albert who some of you probably know from his own publishing and baseball and stats and also mentioned on episode two um, in our listener email um you mentioned in your answer or i guess the the writer mentioned it about his book yeah Yeah, right yeah there there was a question about his book and we said we'll have him on and we we did yeah, we, we did. did right away. <laughs> uh, but what, what's what's funny is that we didn't have him on about the subject we wanted to have him on about in general, although we did end up getting into it, which is how you publish research. So this hot hand thing was really, you know, I think uh, the conversation that Jim and Rob had for on behalf of our listeners, which you'll be hearing in a moment, is – really interesting because it hits on some statistic methodologies. It it talks about how we publish and why we publish and when we publish it and how we define streakiness and the hot hand. Um, But we didn't have time to do the things we always do, which we promised we do on this show, which is get to know the the guests. So, But we'll have them back on both of them, I'm sure, uh, and get to know them a little bit uh, when we do. Uh, So in the meantime, though, uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, suggest somebody that we talk to, or um, just give us any feedback, you can reach us on Twitter at stolen underscore signs and uh, email us. Um, the email address is stolen underscore signs at baseballperspectus.com. So uh, please um, do that. And then also rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That is helpful. And um, yeah, so I'm excited to share this um, discussion with you guys. So we will jump right into that after the break. I'm here to 
Thank you for joining us uh, for Stolen Signs. Uh, we're on episode three, and today we're going to be talking to Jim Albert, who is the professor of mathematics and statistics at Bowling Green State University and author of many great baseball books, um, Analyzing Baseball with R, Curveball, and a new ball or a new book coming out this fall called Visualizing Baseball. So, Jim, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. And we also have Rob Arthur of 538. Uh, Rob, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. All right, so today we are going to be talking about an article, Rob, that you wrote um, called Baseball's Hot Hand is Real, uh, co-authored with Greg Matthews, and um, kind of the discussion that has ensued from there. So can you um, maybe give us a, a set the stage a little bit with um, what you were trying to find there and um, and then we can talk about it a little bit? Sure. Um, so we started off by uh, thinking about this model called the hidden Markov model that um, had been applied in baseball before, but not to the particular data that we wanted to look at, which was fastball velocities um, derived from the pitch effects system. So we had this, this notion that we could apply a hidden Markov model, which essentially looks for two different states um, that are unknowable uh, in, in, a, in this new kind of data, pitch velocity data. And the two states is, would essentially correspond to a hot and a cold um, that each pitcher would be experiencing as they threw their fastball over the course of the season. So uh, what we did is we took that model and applied it on the pitch FX data, and I'm going to kind of gloss over some of the complexities that went into that. But uh, what we ended up finding is that essentially every pitcher seemed to have a distribution of velocities between their hot and their cold state that suggested that um, they were going through meaningful shifts in, in their fastball velocity over the course of the season. And that was pretty striking and surprising because previous research uh, within baseball has found little evidence of a kind of hot hand or hot streak effect, um, both with pitchers and with hitters. Um, typically, people have, uh, even when people have found some evidence for a hot hand effect, uh, it tends to be like uh, 0.1 runs allowed per nine, for example. What we were finding was much bigger than that. We were finding that fastball velocities fluctuated sometimes three to four miles per hour. If you uh, sort of run that back and uh, and use regressions on how much fastball velocity affects performance, what you see is that that would affect, that would impact, at least in theory, the performance level or the true talent level of a pitcher by something like one run allowed per nine. So it can really transform a pitcher from, for example, mediocre to one of the best in baseball. Um, so basic to summarize everything, we put this new model onto fastball velocity data and we're finding uh, pretty huge shifts in fastball velocity that would indicate potentially huge shifts in performance. And a lot of that was new. And so we wanted to write it up as soon as possible. Great. Thanks, Rob, for that overview. And then, Jim, you, um, a couple days later, I, I know that there was some conversation on Twitter and various other uh, avenues, and you kind of responded to this article and um, 
had some thoughts about it, Jim. Can you talk us through, again, maybe a little high level of what that looked like for you? Well, I, I guess the one big issue was I'm not sure they're really addressing an interesting question because a pitcher throws a number of pitches. And a fastball, in fact, I think they're focusing on one type of fastball, is just one of those pitches. And I think the, the really the interesting question is, do players have, are they hot and cold with respect to their performance in terms of the actual, everything they do in terms of um, pitch selection, in terms of location, in terms of what happens you know, with the batter. I mean, that's the kind of stuff. That's really the question you're interested in looking at. And they didn't really address that. They just focused on on fastballs. And that I think that has um, a pretty small impact on their overall effectiveness. And the thing that probably bothered me the most is that um, this hit mark off, and I think it's even notable that Rob started off by saying, I want, we wanted to apply this model. That is all backwards because you start off with a statistical question, and then you find try to find something, some suitable um, model to try to understand the variation. And it seems like they put this this wonderful hidden Markov model, which is really cute to describe. It's like they're fitting, they're deciding that's the model we're going to use no matter what, and you get some interesting result, but it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. Now I I can say this because I've I've used the model. I also thought it was cute 25 years ago. And then I discarded it because I realized it didn't really represent the variation very well. Okay. Um, so I, let me just see if I can summarize what you just said, Jim, a little bit. So you're saying that the, the question that um, you think is an interesting question in this is, is streakiness or the hot hand or, or you know, whatever you call it, is that, is that a phenomenon that exists, Right. Sure, that's that's an interesting question, right? And when I say when I say hot hand, people usually think that you know people players tend to be hot during a period of time, you know they're hot, and then so if you're hot one day, you're more likely to be hot the next day. Like you think about uh, Steph Curry shooting three point shots, right? He gets into these zones where he just sort of he can't miss, right? So he's hot, and then suddenly things change, and suddenly he can't make anything. And so then you go into a cold state for a while. So this is what people usually think about when you think about hot and cold. And I think that's actually, I don't think that fastball velocity deviates too much from that. I think it definitely is missing. uh, That's not all. That's not every part of pitcher performance for for one thing. Um, And I think that's, you know, clear. I don't think anybody's claiming that this covers command or what the other pitches are doing, but there's definitely uh, if you lose a couple miles an hour off your fastball, you, you're losing your margin of error, and it, it your stuff isn't as good. It, all else being equal, your stuff will just won't be as good or as overall effective. Does that map to complete performance and actual outputs? It's like, well, baseball is a stupendously high performance game. So Steph Curry is in the zone. Can we call it that? You know, the kind of in that flow state for the athlete where their level of focus and execution is kind of pre-conscious, subconscious, where they're just, you know, pumping out the shots. Michael Jordan's shrugging. I don't know how I made all these shots. So is that fair to everybody to kind of refer to it with those words as well? Yeah. So uh, when a pitcher's in the flow, it's going to be 
harder to tell because if Steph's in the flow, the ball goes in the rim and through the net. For a pitcher, he's going to be executing his mechanics optimally and efficiently, and that would probably manifest in velocity and command. And so I, I, I do believe fundamentally that the effort to measure streakiness in starting pitchers between starts is, is I think that's one thing that that's a good operational definition that the player is on a roll of some kind. But I think when we're talking about it and we break it down and, and operationalize it at a lower level, which is, well, that means the player's in the flow state of some kind or they're in the zone. As my, my friend who's a scout, I talked about this whole thing with, um, he, he used that word in the zone. And, uh, you know, when he played in college and when he coached in college, he's like, he's like, that, this, this is real. It's like, there's a, there is a streak thing. He's like, your fastball stuff, you know, Rob and Greg's fastball stuff isn't going to get all of it, but he's like, but yeah, sure. It makes sense in terms of the performance. So I think one of the biggest bundles of, of, uh, disagreement here is how we've defined the subject. So one is looking at like kind of game level or shot level results, one is looking at the closer down to the performance and skill level. So I think that's a pretty significant area of disconnect. And you could even argue that they're asking different, fundamentally different questions. Although I would submit they're fundamentally connected if they are, and they're certainly not mutually exclusive. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I just wanted to like kind of respond to what Jim said and, and sort of justify our choice of using fastball velocity. One of the reasons we did that is because essentially all the previous research I've looked at on the hot hand in baseball has looked at performance measures. And performance measures are great. I wish we could we could have used those. But the problem with them is that they're very messy. Um, we know that from a, a lot of years of studying baseball that something like earned runs allowed or runs allowed or even fielding independent pitching, it has a lot of randomness and stochasticity in it. It's dependent on all sorts of factors like the ballpark, the opposition, and various other things. What is great about fastball velocity is that it's essentially just a product of the pitcher himself. If, and if, if you're able to subtract out sort of measurement error, which we can do pretty accurately now, and a few other factors, you get to this um, level of performance that is really just the consequence of that pitcher. And the reason that uh, I would justify it, justify calling it a measure of performance or at least closely connected to performance um, is that uh, study after study has shown that even though it's only the one, it's only one pitch in a pitcher's arsenal, it's very intimately correlated with uh, their earned run average, their, run, their uh, runs allowed, and so on. Um, the correlations are very tight and it's very impactful. One mile per hour of fastball velocity tends to add uh, or subtract about 0.3 runs allowed per nine. So uh, it's really got a huge impact um, based on what the studies that have been done previously on how our pitcher performs. Um, and that combined with the fact that we had uh, this more consistent measure that was really more of a product of the pitcher himself made us want to use it instead of something like FIP or one of the uh, direct measures of performance that we could have used. So, so Jim, how, how much of a where, – where do you think this is? I mean, is, are these connected things? Are they separate things? Are they the, are they the same thing based on you – You're know? talking about the um, – okay, so I, I don't have any – I mean, again, the fastball speed, I understand the desirability of wanting to use that because it is completely controlled by the pitcher. I mean, but then to throw it into this 
this silly hidden Markov model, which well, okay, is, let's, we'll get to the, the, the model in a second. I just want to make sure you know yeah. we, we kind of yeah. I mean, I, I definitely I, I, want to dive into that, but I kind of want well, to make sure. Just we, say, I'm not completely convinced that within a picture, the the speed has a lot to do with effectiveness. Now, you you made well, it sound well, like um, Greg I think it's incomplete. I think the question is, I, I, I put that question to this this scout, and I said, you know. That was his because his first response, and he's not a statistician, so he didn't care about the model. Was yeah, you're good. You're looking for something that that ex we believe exists, but this this is not how to find it. I said, well, you know why? And it's basically because it's only part of it. So I, I think fastball velocity being one aspect of of it, and you would expect that a pitcher at his better velocity is probably also at his better command that that's something that has to be tested so you don't know that and they vary within you know within the population of pitchers some guys are best command at best velocity some guys if they back off they're better some guys may be saving energy intentionally and, and things like that so he's he, he pointed out all the caveats and said that command might be a better you know measurement and i said where is this is this 10 percent? is it 50 percent and he said it's the million dollar question that they don't you don't know what what part of it is velocity. So it definitely has this aspect of uh, from what the pitcher can control. Fastball velocity is is a reasonable is a reasonable but incomplete and probably noisy thing to use for looking at pitcher performance. So I kind of wonder if there's a way to do whatever the method if we had a way to measure command at that granular of a level. And I don't think we do right now for what it's worth. But if we did. If we could, Jim, if we could put command and fastball to get fastball velocity together, do you think that would start getting closer to a meaningful level performance, or, or yeah, is that still too just a multi-dimensional thing? I mean, I mean, right? I mean, so you see the fastball, and right. So I think the the pitcher, if you ask him, sure, sure, he wants to throw the ball fast, but he's probably more thinking about locating it, right? And you see, you know, you see games where. Pitchers are remarkable for locating their fastball in other games where other pitchers have no clue where it's going, you know. Um, I'm not sure Chapman, for example, has a good idea. <laughs> I think Jake Arrieta is a great example. He's a guy who goes from having – he might be throwing 93, 95, but one start he's not hitting the corners and the other start he is. So, uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's – I, I definitely agree with the – I'm kind of in the middle, I think. I'm like the, I think this is a good first step towards this and showing that you can isolate. And we'll talk about the methodology in a second. I think. Well, we have we have pitch locations. Of course, we know where the ball goes, right? We have that. Well, we know where it goes. We don't know where they're aiming. And we don't have the command um, command effects and the command data that, that the teams get via the TrackMan Major League Baseball stuff. It's very incomplete and very misleading. There, there's targeting and where a guy is going is... is is really hard to figure out. I think that's part of it. You might be able to, for some pitcher catcher combinations and pitch types, use that. Uh, but you also, we also found that the frameability of a pitcher, they're called strikes above average rate. It, it helps that that's, that's another piece of command. And the thing that we haven't really added into our research and, you know, this is a preview of future things for our listeners uh, is ability to locate multiple pitches in different parts of the of the plate. So can you throw his fastball in all four corners? Can you throw his breaking ball in different places? They could start to use those pieces as measurements of, of, of command that are, are a little more complete to that picture. So it, but those but the problem is those take like a lot of aggregation. I'm not sure we'll be able to get down to like in game within an inning 
objective measurement of command like we can with a fastball. Um, I just want to. Yeah. I just want to mention one additional piece of research that uh, didn't make it into the article. And um, I guess before I say that, I should say, you know, we're, we're pretty seriously word limited and complexity limited in writing an article for our, a general audience. So that influenced our ability to put in a lot of the more um, the more detailed analyses that we did. But one of the ones that we did do is we looked at the probability of getting a called strike as a function of the hotness of the pitcher at a given time. Um, and um, we found that if a pitcher was hot, they were actually significantly more likely to get a called strike, accounting for a few things um, like pitch location and the, the velocity and the catcher and various other things. So um, that argues, I think, against the idea that this is just pitchers throwing faster than normal at the cost of command or at the cost of their ability to uh, get strikes. Um, in fact, we found the opposite, that when these pitchers are on these hot streaks, it's actually playing to their advantage and it's making them more able to get both called and swinging strikes. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of strong evidence that it's not just a velocity thing, that it's actually impacting their performance and impacting their ability to uh, generate positive outcomes for, the, uh, for, for their team. Can I, can I ask a question about that? So sure. when there's, um, so when they're throwing faster, is, is there, would, would you expect that they would normally get more swinging strikes and called strikes? Or is that, it seems to me that, that whether they're hot or not, that may or may not matter. Like, is there like the velocity is overwhelming yeah, yeah yeah exactly like if whether they're hot or if they're cold um well i guess i don't know i'm it, it seems i guess maybe the question is more does that exist outside of you know hot or cold like if somebody's throwing faster just in general they're more likely to get called strikes or swinging strikes or is that yeah, that, that um, is... I, I think that's true. Um, certainly with swinging strikes, I'm not sure okay. that's true for called strikes. But with swinging strikes, what we did to adjust for that, and with called strikes as well, uh, what we did to adjust for that is to take the actual velocity on the pitch that was thrown, on the next pitch that was thrown, and put that into a model and essentially uh, adjust that out. Okay. So that was one of the predictor variables that we used. What we found is that there was this effect even on top of the fact that they were throwing harder. So on top of the fact that they that their velocity is up and they're probably blowing by the hitter, there was an additional benefit to being in a hot state on the previous pitch. Um, so that suggested that to us that um, that this is something about their overall performance level, not just the fact that they're throwing harder. Got it. Okay, so so this might be a good good time to jump back into the model, um, and I don't totally know what the hidden markup model is. Um, it, I, I would imagine um, at least some percentage of our listeners don't either. So if we could, um, if you guys could maybe try and do a like a hundred thousand foot view of what that would be um, uh, for. Or maybe the the specifically um, 
maybe Rob, why you chose this. And then also, Jim, I know that you mentioned um, that you've used this um, model previously. So, you know, what about that was attractive to you? And then um, you also mentioned that you've abandoned it. So what kind of caused you to abandon it? Okay, so um, let me jump in with the uh, with the sort of hundred thousand foot overview. Um, it's a really complicated tool compared to most of the things that are used regularly in sabermetrics. Um, so I'm going to keep it very very distant. Um, so essentially, it's a model for a sequence of observations that you have. In this case, the sequence is the uh, set of fastball velocities over the course of a pitcher's season. So it's naturally ordered because a pitcher is throwing one fastball, then the next, then the next. Um, so that's uh, so that's part of it. And then part of it, too, is that um, the reason that it's hidden is that we assume that uh, the fastball velocities are emitted from one of two hidden states. So there are these two possible uh, things that we can't see, these hidden states, which we kind of um, we assume correspond to a hot and a cold state for each pitcher. And in the and, article, sorry, Rob, in the article you mentioned like so a pitcher is like throwing behind a, a sheet or like a screen of some sort, right? And that's kind right. of the hidden aspect of it that you're talking about? Exactly. So okay. we can't tell we can't tell uh, from which of these two states a pitcher is throwing. In the article, I mentioned this kind of toy example of imagine that there were two pitchers throwing from behind a curtain, and one was Jared Weaver and the other was Steven Strasburg. Um, you can't see them. You can't look at their uniforms or their arm mechanics or anything about them except their fastball velocity. Even though you only have the fastball velocity, though, you'd be able to tell which of them was pitching. So this is the basic basic idea of a hidden Markov model. We can see the, the fastball velocity of each pitcher, but we can't tell which of the two states a given pitch is coming from. Despite that, if you look at a few pitches in a row, you're able to guess uh, which of the two states um, a, a pitcher, the pitches come from. Um, so to go back to that Jared Weaver versus Steven Strasburg example, it wouldn't take very many uh, readings on your on your gun to know that uh, Strasburg was pitching because Jared Weaver essentially never goes above, let's say, 90 miles an hour. So if you saw two or three pitches that were 94 or 95, um, then you'd have a pretty good guess that it was Steven Strasburg. Now, this is obviously much more dramatic than the differences that we're actually seeing. Um, but because fastball velocity is so consistent, it kind of holds up even if it was like Steven Strasburg and Marcus Stroman. Um, you'd be able to tell pretty quickly just because they average quite uh, the average fastball velocity between those two is two or three miles per hour different. So it wouldn't take many pitches to know which which one was pitching at a given time. Um, so that's that's kind of the uh, very far, uh, the very distant overview of this. Um, to to make it a little bit more clear to the listeners, uh, we didn't use like a bog standard hidden Markov model. We actually made some adjustments. So we ran uh, one hidden Markov model for all the pitchers. So it, it jointly learned from all the pitchers um, as opposed to having a hidden Markov model for each pitcher. So that was a big advantage of what we did. And we think a, a methodologically new thing um, in uh, from a statistical perspective was that uh, it was learning these states uh, across the league at the same time. And then it was fitting individual uh, differences between hot and cold um, for each pitcher individually on top of that. Um, so 
uh, that was a that was a big advantage, I think, for us. And I don't think we would have been able to get the same results had we been running um, uh, HMM for each pitcher individually. Um, so we didn't just take a to the standard HMM, but uh, take two. Uh, kind of explain uh, what we did is probably outside of the scope of, of this podcast. So right. you can kind of assume that it's the, that that it's the what I just described and, and not worry about the additional tweaks that we made that uh, made it uh, more statistically powerful and, and uh, more novel. Can okay. I, I, can I kind of clarify a little bit because I think um, Rob's description of the model is a bit incomplete because he described the hidden part, but he didn't describe the Markov part. <laughs> So I thought maybe I should explain explain what that means. Yes, so, please. I was about to say, can you tell someone tell me who this Markov guy is and what he's uh, he is a famous uh, sheet? <laughs> probabilist who lived um, a Russian probabilist who probably lived many many centuries ago, and so he's so one basic uh, model in probability theory is called a Markov chain. His name basically a Markov chain is a very simple process, and we can describe it here. A pitcher has two kinds of states: either it's hot or cold. And he's moving between the states, corresponding to probabilities. So maybe one, one game or one pitch, he's hot, and then he may move into it, be continue to be hot, or he might jump into being cold. And so the, a Markov chain is in order to understand those movements, you have probabilities of changing states from one pitch to the next. And um, so, and if you believe in the hot hand, then if you're hot. For one period, you're more likely to be hot in the next period. That's what, and so you have a higher probability of higher than 0.5. And so, so not only are there hidden states, there are movements between the states by governed by a Markov chain. Now you don't, in the model, you don't know what those probabilities are. You have to estimate them from the data. Okay. So that's if otherwise if it, if he didn't have that 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 movement then it wouldn't be you wouldn't call it a mark a hidden Markov model it would just be called a I don't know maybe a some sort of latent model but it wouldn't be that you know. but that aspect of that model wasn't um, talked about of course I understand that you're communicating to a general audience and you can't talk about all the details um, and but that's part of it the, the thing that I did not I don't believe is is that there only are two states that either pitch it's like a pitcher has a switch and either has a hot switch or he's cold and i don't believe that that represents what's happening in baseball very well so i don't believe it and um andrew gelman another famous decision doesn't believe it um so that's why I discarded using it because it just didn't make make any sense for for baseball. Data. So so to to make sure I understand this this the issue with the the state model is that the notion that there are discrete states to begin with right is folly and that it's a continuous. Well, at so least the, at least make, give it have more than two. I mean, I I plotted. I looked at after I read the article. I look. I I collected. Um, since I follow the Phillies, I, I follow. I looked at Cole Hamill's pitching, and <laughs> looked at all his um, fastball. You losses. can't let go, of Cole. Can you? you just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he was. Um, anyway, so uh, I looked at three years of data. Okay, and I looked at and what what I did notice is that I agree that his fastball velocity does vary from game to game. It does, but it also varies within a game. So he's not going to throw exactly the same speed every game. So there is not only is there variability between games, but there is also variation within game. And also the variation between games is not 
I didn't, I not, did not see hot and cold. I saw a lot of uh, variation. You know, there was like a, 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 a continuum of, of average speeds that he had for games. So I didn't see any evidence that a two-state model would make any sense for Cole Hamels. I didn't do an extensive analysis, but, but I think you're trying to fit this data into a, a little shoehorn of a model. And it's, it's a nice model. It has, it's fun to, fun to talk about. I mean, and it, and, it, and it goes into people's beliefs about hot and cold, but I don't think it represents the variation that we see in the data. So, Jim, to, to speak to that a little bit. So, if this is Kendall. Um, if we... That what you're saying makes sense to me, but it also makes sense that that we could split it up into some number of states, right? Like, so maybe there are three states, or maybe there are five states, or something like that. Would if there was a hot, a normal, and a cold, is that something that would you would feel better about, or is it just it's this- in the right direction? It's really in the right direction. I mean, um, ideally, I, ideally, I would have a continuum. Of states, and how would you describe that? Like that would be more the best thing, I think. To to the the general public, um, and and maybe that's not who you're concerned about, and that that's totally fine too. But to the if you're trying to express that to the general public, you could you know say to them, okay, Cole Hamill's fastball velocity exists on a continuum, um, and then me you know, watching a game is like, okay, what does that mean? And and why do I care about that? Whereas if we can say whether it's, again, three, five, seven, um, I can see that um, Cole Hamels is in the, you know, is in the green zone. So we're happy about that. Uh, is that something that would be, um, is that something that you would feel like would be kind of, rigorous enough or uh, dependable enough or something like that where you would be able to kind of give that uh, a thumbs up or is it just the, it, it, go ahead it would represent it would better represent the variation in the data i mean i i, I mean my objective is not to and unfortunately a lot of statisticians do this wrong way they have this methodology and they love it and they want to apply it to baseball data <laughs> and that's i see a lot of um, research like that. And that's all backwards because, I mean, I would focus on looking at the data, looking carefully at the data, and then try to, through a lot of exploratory work, think of a suitable model that might explain what you're seeing. And whenever you fit a model, you have to you have to check it. You have to see if it gives you reasonable predictions. There's always this process of fitting and then trying to see how well it does on, on other data, on data you don't use to fit. You know, that's, a, that's an ongoing thing. Um, right. And, uh, and I think um, here, I mean, I, I know there was some predictive stuff going on, but as I said, this is a now. In some situations, this model might, this two-state model might be great. I mean, for example, if you wanted to detect an injury or something happening to the pitcher, that would be a clearly a different state than like I watched Roger Federer, right? Um, he had an injury in his tournament on Sunday. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to Cincinnati on Thursday. I, I won't see Roger Federer because he has a, a back issue. But again, you could look at his fastballs, his serving speeds, and maybe when he's got an injury, suddenly they change. Right. Okay. And so there, that, there that's, I, yeah, and I think that's one of the main things uh, they found. I think, right. to me, I got, I'm thinking of this as in a, in a way of like, well, there's three – States and I know Rob 
just going to tell us in a second that they had a third state test. But to me, there's three states. There's like, yeah, I'm just doing my thing. I'm normal to I'm sucking. I'm bad. I'm hurt. I'm not focused. I'm out of rhythm to I'm everything's perfect to me. There's got to be a middle ground. But even if I can't detect that middle ground, knowing that I'm at one of the extremes is probably still useful. So, yeah. So is that kind of, Rob, is that kind of where we are? And maybe you can tell us a bit about what some of the other results and some of the the stuff. And in particular, you know, you know, if there's there's two things really, you know, what did you find predictively just so the audience knows what we're talking about? uh, And also, you know, why did you choose this topic and this model, what was the chicken and which was the egg? I think that's that's probably important too. Sure. So I, I should begin by saying we were aware at the outset that this two-state model was just going to be an approximation, that pitchers don't actually go through cleanly two states always in the data. That's uh, obviously kind of a, a toy way of thinking about it or a simplified way of thinking about it. Now, with that said, um, we – uh, also intend to try a continuous model with, you know, a variable number of states or an infinite number of states. Um, but uh, we thought uh, with this early attempt, uh, even though we knew that uh, there weren't necessarily always two states, that it was providing us useful information and so had value. Um, I think to, to get to the broader sort of perspective of how you do modeling, um, there's always assumptions and models that you know are violated. That, that happens uh, all the time. Um, the question isn't whether an assumption is violated. Uh, it, it usually is at some point in the, in the modeling of any kind of data. The question is whether your model can still be useful and can still be predictive despite that. Um, so in this case, uh, our model did pass that test. Um, what we found, uh, going to the latter half of your question, Harry, um, is that our model was able to predict the next fastball's velocity uh, uh, better than a uh, guess based on a pitcher's season-long average would be able to. And this is a true out-of-sample test uh, where we ran the model on only the first uh, N pitches, where N is like, let's say, 400 pitches, and then we tested it on the 401st pitch. And what we found is when a pitcher was hot on that 400th pitch, the next fastball was going to be at a higher velocity than if he had been cold, and that was a significant difference. So what we found, what that shows us is that despite the fact that we made this simplifying assumption that there were only two states, this assumption that is almost certainly wrong for most pitchers, um, it was still giving us a power to say that the next, the next fastball was going to be faster than expected by, by uh, the overall average. Uh, we also did some additional work that I've already kind of mentioned on performance, where we found that uh, pitchers tended to actually perform better in terms of swinging strike rate, in terms of batting average, in terms of extra base hit rate on the pitches that they were hot, even accounting for the fact that they were throwing harder on those pitches. So it seemed to us that this model was producing useful information, even though it was kind of a simplified version. I should mention as well, Harry, uh, that we tried a three-state model, and we found that the three-state model didn't fit as well for the majority of the pitchers. What ended up happening with the three-state model is uh, with, uh, we had the two uh, hot and cold states that we had before, and the third state kind of inserted itself uh, between those two states, but much closer to the hot state. So it seemed to be primarily, it seemed very close, in fact, to the hot state. And uh, not to get too far into the into the weeds in terms of the technical stuff, but when we did these, this permutation where we kind of uh, scrambled the order of the pitches for each pitcher, 
and we re-ran the model, we found that the difference between uh, hot and cold states uh, when we had the two-state model was quite large and exceeded what you'd expect if you just scrambled the order of the pitches. But in the three-state model, the difference between the hot and the medium state, uh, sort of normal or average or whatever you want to call that third state, it wasn't very large and it didn't exceed what we found in the permuted uh, model runs. So. We took that as evidence that this third state wasn't really uh, proving very useful for the majority of pitchers. Now, um, this is where you have this is where we get into uh, a much more complex set of modeling questions. What we think is happening is that different pitchers have different sets of states, right? Um, some pitchers might have genuinely uh, something like two states or at least two modes of states. One where they're injured or just before getting injured and then maybe just after getting injured, and then one where they're healthy. Um, those pitchers are probably going to best be fit by a two-state model, um, at least before we try the continuous number of states. Um, so in uh, other pitchers, however, they might have uh, a more of a sort of gray area or kind of a continuum of fastball velocities that depends not on whether they're injured or not, but on whether they've gotten a good night's sleep or not, or whether um, they feel comfortable pitching in a particular stadium or not. Uh, various other factors that could impact their ability, but aren't quite as dramatic as whether their ligament is partially, their elbow ligament is partially torn. Um, so for those pitchers, you might need to have more states, or you might need to have a continuous set of uh, underlying possibilities for their fastball velocity. Um, we weren't able to get, uh, at this point uh, within the research, we weren't able to get to uh, a model that had variable numbers of states for different pitchers. Um, that's something that we intend to try, and it's something that uh, I, I think will probably improve the fit of the model and be illuminating for a lot of pitchers. But I, I do think that uh, even just with the two states, we were coming on useful information. And uh, to, to further sort of back up our my interpretation of the two states, I want to note that we found there was a pretty strong link between when a pitcher was cold and when he went on the disabled list with an injury. So for uh, about half the disabled list stints that were happened to pitchers in our data in 2016, a pitcher went cold for a prolonged period of, of time just prior to their disabled list then. So that suggested to us, now this is obviously very statistically significant, and it suggested to us that what this cold state was really picking up on, at least for a lot of the pitchers, was uh, an injury or a, uh, a, some kind of health issue immediately prior to them going, up, going on the disabled list. So I, I do think there is some reason to suspect that there would be two states, at least for the pitchers that were injured. And uh, I do think that it's, it's an assumption that's almost certainly wrong, but despite that, despite having made that assumption, we were able to produce useful information, and that was kind of the goal, uh, to show that, that we could predict fastball velocity and performance better than if you assumed uh, one state. And, and I think we did that. So even though uh, this assumption was wrong, it was still useful. So, so this is, uh, you know, the, the first step as you guys are pursuing this research. And so when you were doing the research, um, you wanted to get it out there and share it, obviously, um, in some way. So um, as you were thinking about this, how did you or why did you decide to publish it now in this um, form and then also um, at this particular publication? I, I published it at 538. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. 
Um, so <clears throat> first of all, I should know we've been working on this for a long time. Um, I actually gave a, a presentation at Saber Analytics uh, last year. So we've been working on this for about a year. And um, if you're not familiar with academia, um, my collaborator, Greg Matthews, is a professor at Loyola. So he's part of this academic world. And to, to, pub to publish an academic paper is often a years-long process. Um, and so we've been working on this for long enough that we felt comfortable that we were detecting something interesting. And we felt comfortable that the effects we were seeing were real. Um, however, we're not at a point where we can or where we have written up an academic paper yet. Um, so to, and to, to get to that point was going to take months more, possibly even a year to see it published or, or even more. You know, th this can really drag on for a long time is my point. So we wanted to get the results out there before that because we were really excited about them and we've been working on it for a long time already. Um, and we are fully aware that this is, you know, hasn't been peer reviewed yet, obviously. Um, and uh, so it's not it's not quite as rigorous as academic research would be. And that's certainly a, a reasonable criticism you can level at us. However, um, we think that uh, with what we've presented, we made a fairly convincing non-academic level case. And we wanted to publish it at 538 uh, in part because uh, we thought it was it was it was very interesting results, and so we we had, you know, we were just excited to get it out there. But 538 seemed like the right venue because it's a, a statistics-driven site, and a lot of people come there expecting some stories that are going to be heavily anchored in uh, statistical analysis. So we thought it was a great place to have something like this. And then we also were excited about using this as an opportunity, as kind of an educational opportunity. Um, a hidden Markov model, as I mentioned, is fairly complex as a as statistical models go. It's certainly much more complex than people are tend to be exposed to in their regular daily life, or even in their if they're interested baseball fans. The most you probably run across in your average life is like a linear model. This is a, kind of a, a next step above that. And so we were kind of uh, excited about the possibility of exposing a lot of people to the idea of a hidden Markov model, even if we couldn't give them all the theory and the mathematics that go into HMMs, and we certainly couldn't for a broad audience, we could at least give them the idea and tell them uh, and give them a cool application of this uh, to baseball data. And we also think that, so uh, before I move on, I should mention, I think that educational mission is really important. And it's, it's something that uh, I feel passionately about. And it's part of my job, I think, is to uh, take the statistical knowledge that I have and translate it into a language that other people can understand and that the general public can actually get something out of. So I, I feel passionate that that's an important thing to do. And that even if it comes at the cost of some accuracy, uh, or not, not if, uh, if it comes at the cost of accuracy, if it comes at the cost of fully dis describing the model or exactly what we did, then that's a choice that we should make because we should be telling people about the research that we do. Um, and, and Jim, what are some of the kind of downsides? I mean, you do a lot of, you know, writing of technical, statistical things for the public, but, you know, in the books you've mentioned and and you, you are the, you know, the blogging regularly about the, these things. Uh, how, how do you look at that challenge and how do you and how do you address that? And for those of us like Rob and myself who kind of work at you know, all Prospectus and kind of we like to show because of uh, for various reasons, the making of the sausage, as it were. How are we doing as, as, as an industry in, in this area from your perspective in terms of of tackling that? Walking that line that Rob just just described. 
Well, you know, I, I, I understand. We, we have this sort of schism between the academic people who are doing baseball research and baseball prospectus. And to be honest, I think baseball prospectus is at the cutting edge. I mean, I think they are doing real interesting things. And I wish that there was more more communication or more dialogue between people like your site and academics. Um, okay, so I think that that's one issue which I'm, I'm just, I hope we could improve that. Now I've, I've got a comment on, on the fact that this thing was published. Now I'm, see, I'm, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about how statistical content is being presented to our, to the media. And I know there's this big misconception about the hot hand. People don't understand randomness. And so often they see hot, they think things are hot and cold, but really there's nothing going on. So this is big misconception. And when you start, putting out material without, you know, with no, no research or no published, no, even an article to look at. I mean, to me, this is not, this is not good. I mean, this is actually making things worse because you're starting, I mean, this, for example, all you've described in terms of this model, it seems like you're doing a cluster analysis. You're not doing a hidden Markov model. You're doing cluster analysis. Now, you're probably doing a hidden Markov model, but you don't explain it well enough, so I can't tell the difference. And so the more you talk about it, the more confused I am about what you actually did. I looked for a paper. When I saw it, I said, I said there must be a paper. Greg must have a paper out there, which at least tells me what he did. I couldn't find anything. So I was just befuddled about what to make, make of this. I mean, um, it's an interesting problem. I understand, but you just can't. I mean, I, I mean, everything I did in Curveball, everything I did in Curveball was all based on published research. So if you wanted to learn more, you had a place to go to learn more about it. Here, what, what is what, what would you suggest the reader do to learn more? Well, I'd suggest they contact us, and we we tried to answer as many questions as were thrown at us. And we also did publish the code, so there's a full specification of the model in that code. Um, well, we published it a bit late because Greg was uh, dealing with a baby situation. He has a, a 11 month old kid, so I understand that we should have had it, you know, when it went to press. Um, but I, I do think that there's value to publishing stuff in advance of an academic paper because you get a chance to hear this feedback from both you and Andrew Gelman and many other people. And I think that's going to improve our eventual academic paper that we do write. And um, I, I mean, the whole the whole premise of 538, and this might just be a philosophical disagreement between you and I, but the whole premise of 538 is to do good statistical research um, for a public audience. And based on the news. And so we can't really do that at the time scale that it takes to publish academic articles. You know, if we had to go through the whole peer review process before we published every piece that we wrote, um, we just wouldn't be able to do anything. We would fail as a site. So the idea uh, for us at, at 538, or at least for me, I, I shouldn't speak for everyone there, but for me, I want to do high quality statistical analysis that can be rigorous, but uh, is, uh, is is still you can turn it around in a quick time and can react to the news and what's going on that day. Um, I understand that there's a cost uh, in terms of uh, rigor uh, when you try and do things quickly. That's, that's kind of necessary. But I, I do think there's a place for um, publishing something that is uh, not you haven't explored the full space of the, the problem or the, or the statistical model the way you would for an academic paper, but it's still interesting results and still fairly well backed up. And 
um, uh, uh, still saying something interesting. So that, that was our objective with it. And that's our objective, I think, with the site in general. And I think there is a place for that. And I think that uh, that enriches people's experience as uh, as consumers of both baseball analysis and politics and any number of other areas of their lives. What we try to do with VP is, you know, we, we recognize that there's there's a split in the audience. I don't think we look at it as uh, academic versus non-academic, although it may fall along those lines coincidentally. Well, not coincidentally, but <clears throat> in part. But uh, have an interesting, compelling article about the research and then have some of the gory math and whatnot and the, 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 the guts of the model as a separate article, as a companion piece. So I, I, I don't know how that fits. Um, so basically that, that there's, I, I think there's the problem here of timeline uh, and, and apparent rigor and clarity. And yeah. I think on the sports entertainment, political entertainment, whatever it may be, that publishing timeline is just flatly incompatible with the academic standards for rigor and review. So how, how do we, you know, how do you do both? How do you serve both masters? And, you know, you know, BP, that seems to help. I, I don't know. I mean, Jim, what, what would be, you know, if you, if you were, you know, to, to, to advise me, you know, and BP and the editorial side, what would be the things that you, we have to do when we publish, you know, say we publish the article, if you want to be, say this is for 538 to consider great, but what are the things that we have to do to make meet that responsibility while if you can accept the fact that we can't bridge the gap completely because of the, the nature of the business so how do we how do we avoid doing a disservice and risk providing impartial incorrect or misleading or confusing information and those are our separate things i think uh, well, I think one question, um at my staff meeting we had a real interesting presentation by Oh, the Wall Street Journal has a column on numbers. I can't think who the author is. And she described what her role is, is to find interesting things that are already been published and try to communicate them in a general way to the public. Mm-hmm. So this is very different. So instead of coming out with some research which is not quite ready for prime time, rather you find articles that have been published on interesting topics and then you just try to make sense of it and then – you know, explain it, what's going on. And this way you're, um, you're, you have a little more I, I, I confidence that what you're saying has some validity because it is pure you know, reviewed research, but, the, but you're still reaching the goal of trying to communicate to a broader audience. But in terms of the timeliness uh, of things, and I think hot hand maybe is not a great example because I'm, you know, that I think that is something that it's relevant anytime. Sure, we could have written that whenever. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but maybe the ball, all, Rob's also been one of the, the primary researchers on the changes to the baseball. That's been a lot of making of the sausage. I mean, for two years, Alan Nathan has been giving talks that have been concluded with, I'm not sure what this means, which, you know, openly doing these things in, you know, at conferences and baseball and on perhaps on blogs and articles at Hardball Times and Baseball Prospectus and uh, and maybe so maybe that's a better example, you know, without going into the details of the ball stuff. But the, the, the construct of this is the steps we are going through, because in, 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 there are people who are going to be working as baseball analysts and researchers because there is some limited money out there for people to do it and write about it. Uh, so the people going for that are incentivized to 
publish their work. So, you know, waiting for things to be fully academic thing, it's, that's just is a different, this is like, how do we go through the making of the sausage part with making compelling stories, which is really the goal of our bosses who are writing the checks at the end. Uh, how do we, how do we do that without just throwing up our hands and going, you know, we can't publish research until it's full, until it's fully realized. So the, the, the juice ball, we can't talk about it until Alan has spent five years and it's been peer reviewed and published in, 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 a, in a leading journal. Meanwhile, the ball has already changed. The home run conditions have changed. The story is no longer relevant. And the people who are actually financing that work, they don't give a shit anymore. So nobody's going to pay for it. So how do we how do we balance those those things? Because I agree with Jim. And this is something I've held long standing to many years ago when I was a graduate student. And we would teach about how badly science was taught, transmitted through media. And I basically would take, have our students go and find a news story, a newspaper. This is before the internet was a big thing. Uh, you know, this is the mid-90s. Find it, go watch your TV, find that story, then go to the library and figure out and find the primary research. And even, you know, and, and tell us if, if what you can interpret from that primary or even a well-sourced secondary research tells you, does that support the thing on the news? And they always came back with, no, it turns out that nurses drinking more coffee doesn't prevent cancer. That's not what the study said. So are we doing that? Did we, you know, have we thrown up a false, are we throwing out false information about is the ball juice, is the hot, is the hand hot? Is there evidence building for the hot hand? Are we doing that, you know, so badly and and we kind of have to in a way, or do we just give up? Um, And we can't just give up. So how do we kind of mitigate what we're doing? Well, for example, baseball prospectus, when someone writes an article, um, of course, you have the comments of people who are reading the article, but otherwise, is someone else re- looking at it first, or is there any kind of informal peer review? I'm just trying to get a sense of that. Yeah, we send things out. It depends. I mean, we do. We do, we have kind of a, a network of statisticians and academics. And congratulations, you're probably going to end up on that list now. <clears throat> I see you raising your hand to volunteering, Jim. Put your hand down or else. Um, <laughs> But we do. I, Brian Mills will frequently give us feedback, you know, with the work I do on strike zones and stuff. Um, but, yeah, we do. We, we try and get people from outside the process. Uh, the more, but the thing is, the more we use people from outside of our process, the more they end up being within it. So there is a challenge there. Yes. I, do we do enough of that? I think Judge does a really Jonathan Judge. I think he's I think he bugs the authors of his R packages. He's probably in Andrew Gelman's email box quite a bit um, as well. Uh, I think he does quite a lot of, of that on his own. And I don't, I would say that. So with that said, I think the best that people do at that is based on their individual motivation, as opposed to some process that we have in place. That said, I tend to be, I've become a stickler about literature reviews, you know, but not to the, you know, to basically don't mostly with the idea that we don't want this idea written about if it's already been written about. And the running joke at BP is that there's a 90% chance that Russell Carlton already wrote about your idea in the past 10 years <laughs> uh, and check that first. And, and, but that doesn't quite get to what you're saying. I think, it, you know, so in my mind, that was helping and that was doing better work. But I don't think, Jim, it gets quite to what your concern is, which is it's hard to replace that rigor. Yeah, if I might say something here. Um, so I, I guess I, I – maybe this is just a philosophical disagreement, but I, I don't like the idea of academic peer review as always being the kind of standard of when something is true or not. 
Um, I'm a former academic myself, actually. I got a PhD in genetics uh, several years ago, and uh, Greg Matthews is also a, a statistics professor. And um, so we've both been through this a lot. And I think that very often peer review is, is not a great process for any number of reasons. And you can often uh, find something is, that's true and that is interesting to the public at large uh, very early in the publication process and not have it get out for years and years after that. And so I, I think that um, whether this is one of those cases or not is maybe up to other people to decide. But uh, the idea that that everything that is written about in a popular news site should be peer-reviewed, which I'm not sure if that's what you're saying, Jim, but if it is, uh, I, I, I have to strenuously disagree with that because um, it would really reduce the value of statistics. And in place of that, I think what would come rushing back is a bunch of hogwash from former players about momentum and how the hot hand is real with no evidence whatsoever. So I think that our, our stuff is maybe not perfect. I, I'll go a step further. Certainly not perfect. Uh, we definitely could have done this better. But uh, at the same time, I think it is accomplishing something that's uh, really um, useful and important and, and trying to kind of build up uh, a new kind of journalism that's statistically rigorous, but also um, but also interesting to the public and can be turned around on a reasonable time frame. Another thing I wanted to say here is that um, uh, a lot of the academic publishing apparatus was kind of built at a time when there were very different technologies available uh, in terms of communication and a lot of other things. So, for example, the Internet didn't exist when the whole peer review process was started. And what the Internet enables us to do is anyone can contact me as a journalist. I list my, my email uh, publicly, and I have my Twitter available as well. Anyone can contact me at any time uh, with a question about anything that I wrote. And I have tried to lean on that as much as possible when I'm writing these articles because it's it's impossible for me to get all the analysis that I did into an article and still have it be readable. Even if I put it in footnotes, uh, it would just expand the size of the article too much. Um, so what I try and always have people do, if, if, uh, if there's any question, you know, just reach out to me and I can tell you about other analyses that I did, or I can even go back into my data and look at something, uh, at that moment and say like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And that was part of what we found, or, um, actually that was kind of a weakness in the article. I'm happy to do that. And I tried to make myself available for this article. And, and, um, I think to Jim's credit, and we really appreciate this, Jim, uh, you gave us a chance to respond to your criticism. Uh, uh, in advance of you publishing the article, and, and we're very thankful for that. Um, I think that's that should be a general part of it, and that's something that the, the traditional peer, peer review process doesn't really allow for. But it's something that we try and take advantage of at 538, that if there's something in the article that you think should have been accounted for, come ask us and come ask me in particular, and I'll tell you if I did account for it or if I didn't and why I didn't. Um, so. Uh, I think that's a way to kind of strengthen the statistical analysis and, and still communicate um, some of the rigor that went into the article without making the article itself uh, bloated and unreadable for a general audience. Can I make one request, though? I think there should be, at least be a paper or some manuscript that describes what's going on. I mean, I don't, it didn't appear there was one. And that to me is is scary because I know that when I write papers in the process of actually writing it clearly, I figure out there's a lot of mistakes in what I do. I mean, just because I'm trying to communicate it and I understand there are holes. So here, when there's not even a manuscript or anything for me to check, and there are open sources that you can submit it to a, 
a place where these are open, you know. So we're, we're trying to do more of that kind of thing. So paper, manuscripts are available to people to read. Yeah, um, I think that's that's a reasonable request to make, and, and I think maybe going forward, if I was if I was doing this over again, I'd try and have um, at least a very clear method section that we could uh, point people to when they had questions about the specifics of the model. Um, we were kind of hoping that the code would would serve as that, but I know that it's difficult to read other people's code and, and get the full ex- uh, idea of what's going on. Um, we, I think that's not always possible, you know, depending on, this wasn't a particularly time sensitive article, but, you know, some of the articles like the juice ball thing, for example, are, and so it, even just preparing a preprint, preprint can take months, uh, depending on the complexity of the material that you're dealing with. So it's not always possible. Although I think in this case, I, I wish we could have had the preprint available to, uh, be vetted and be looked at, uh, when alongside the article. Well, the nice thing now is you can easily put code within like a markdown document. So you can have a nice document that has the model, describes the model, gives the introduction, and then put the code there and have do the analysis. And so you have the whole thing. It's more, we think you need more than code. You need at least some documentation, which explains what's what's going on. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, I think we'll we'll look to do that going forward. Um, I I, I would just say, I don't mean this as an excuse. I mean this as I I appreciate uh, getting this feedback because we're kind of figuring out how we can uh, do this uh, even as we're doing it. So uh, we're trying to learn how we can make rigorous stuff and how we can share the results, uh, both with the academically interested people and with public at the same time. And so your suggestion of like a code markdown, that's that's really great. I think if we were to do this over again, we, w- we would have done that. Well, with that, I think you just hit the big thing, which is, uh, you know, we're going to be making the sausage. Got to at least tell us what the ingredients were and what you did in the lab. Poster lab notes, you know, I mean, that, that's, that, I think that will satisfy as best as possible both masters. Um, yeah. Yeah. So... I, I, I've learned a great deal today, so thank you guys. This was really tremendous. It just to, to listen to this discussion, take part of it was really a pleasure. So I know, Jim, we're going to have you back on someday to talk about your books and your experience in teaching and bridging this gap because uh, we got probably deeper into this subject today than I thought we would, but it's, we, I don't think we even scraped it because I could go on. We could go on for another hour, and someday, Jim, hopefully you'll you'll – Give us another hour of your time, and we'll do that again. That'd be um, nice. That'd be, that'd be so been tremendous. Rob, thank you as always. You're 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 a baseball writer, so I know you have plenty of time to give up. So I'm not, <laughs> not going to thank you for your time. <laughs> I'm always happy to come back. Thank you for having me uh, in this discussion. I, I learned a lot as well. So thank you all. Thank you. We'll talk to you guys again hopefully. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks. everybody welcome back we want to just circle back and talk a little bit about our discussion with rob and jim harry so we had this nice long discussion with them what um what does it all mean yeah what does it all mean (laughs) i know for me it was really interesting to participate and and listen and I keep promising myself that I'm going to talk less during these things, but goodness gracious, we keep talk, we keep having guests on that I'm so interested in, and because this hit, this hit a bunch of stuff. Like, like, like Professor Albert, I, I'm very passionate about 
and I, you know, I, I told the story about my time as a teaching assistant in this subject. And, you know, there's, it's so important to represent information correctly. So to me, you know, the practical thing is, okay, that was a great conversation. That was great to listen to. They got to air out their differences and understand each other better, which I think was really interesting just to eavesdrop on. But for me, like in my role at BP and in general in this space is that was important because yeah, you got to have your code, got to have something that's like, I don't want to say everything has to be open source, but you have to be when you're publishing an article, your publishing entity, whether it's BP, 538, your own personal blog. You have to have some manifestation of code and te- technical details, whether well, the model specification, you know, l- links, you know, I mentioned literature reviews, you know, I think we've done started to do a better job with that at BP where you, you say, here's all the good articles you should read that I read in preparation for writing this. But the other one is, and I don't think we really talked about this explicitly in the conversation we just had, but I think it's going to come down to being transparent about the limitations of the study. So where are we? So for for the example of the hot hand thing, it might be like, hey, explicitly clear, like boilerplate, almost, you know, plain language of this study has, you know, made assumptions regarding the states of the of the blah, 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 of you know, only two states instead of three. For more information on that, click here. And it's something where there's like a raw document that says, these are the assumptions we made and that we hope to not make. This is our next study. There's some things we didn't publish. And it has to be something that a place like 538 can support and sustain. So I, right. I mentioned that BP may have a second article, but I think that in that second article, you also have to be explicit, or even in the primary article, like in a, in a call-out box yeah. of some kind that says, by the way, don't go to the don't go to the bar tonight and say hot streaks exist because hidden Markov models said so. Right. Because that's not what this says. And that's like the that may be at odds with publishing exciting stuff, but I think from an ethical point of view, it's it's the right thing to do because you have to be very clear that this article does not say the following. It well, tells us where we are. It also gets away from the hot takery, you know, like there this stuff is 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 backed up. This is how it is backed up, whether it's, like you say, BP or 538 or or wherever. Um, If you're making claims and you want those claims to be taken seriously, um, that that stuff needs to be out there. I think that's what you're saying, too, is um, there's there's so many people, like you say, who go out to the bar and and are like, hey, this this is the way that it is because, you know, I heard that from somebody or even, um, you know, like just. And I know Rob mentioned it a little bit in our discussion, like if this article was just um, I talked to a bunch of pitchers and they said that they feel like that, like while those stories are probably very interesting, um, that's not something that's really rigorous or could could really be dependent on as something to, you know, base decisions on whether it's, you know, for a team or just for your own enjoyment if you just say oh yeah some guy said hot streaks exist because he felt hot one time when he was pitching um that's not probably true could be true right probably true exactly but 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 it's anecdata and it's not going to move things forward so i think the whole thing is like you know walking that line and and it's kind of funny maybe that's going to be a a recurring theme of, of this show because you know and maybe it is one of the fundamental themes of the show is that we want to talk about these things and the people 
Um, so like we said, we didn't uh, get to spend the time with Rob and Jim about that late, uh, to get into their backgrounds. We also want to have Greg Matthews, Rob's co-author on that paper and at some point as well. So I guess we'll leave our listeners with that, that, you know, this was a, we're going to learn more about these people and, and their backgrounds. You heard very little about that today, unfortunately, but hopefully this was more about, uh, understanding not just this one topic, but I think building some foundations for, for myself and others like me to do better work going forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, and again, so reach out to us at, on Twitter at stolen underscore signs and via email stolen underscore signs at baseballperspectus.com. Give us feedback, give us suggestions, introduce us to people that you want us to meet or have on the show or topics or anything like that we would love. And then uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks, Harry, for today and having this discussion. And um, we will see you all next time. Yeah, that'll be episode four next time. Just got to figure out what what we're going to do for episode four. So, yeah, email us and make sure we have an idea. But we'll, we'll get on that. 